Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown with three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown. You get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at Wilmington and Beaches Vacation.com. You're listening to the podcast for Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Buy tickets to upcoming live events in San Francisco at InforumSF.org. Want even more Inforum? Find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram as InforumSF. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this very special virtual program with Inforum at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Tom Philpot, food and agriculture correspondent at Mother Jones Magazine. And I could not be more delighted to be in conversation tonight with chef and food writer J. Kenji Lopez-Alt. Kenji is a managing culinary director of Serious Eats, author of the James Beard Award-nominated column The Food Lab, a New York Times contributor, and the Internet's leading chef scientist. And tonight we'll be talking about all things food in the COVID-19 era. Let's get started. First of all, Kenji, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Um, I am a huge fan of yours. I have learned so much uh, from your writing, um, and I'm just delighted to be talking to you tonight. I'm, I'm delighted to be talking to you, too. Now, I really, what I really want to do is nerd out with you about home cooking, but there is this <laughs> giant gorilla in every room right now, and it is the, the COVID-19 crisis, the ongoing COVID-19 crisis. And I think a lot of people are puzzling out, you know, we're weak whatever into this thing, and we're still figuring out what to do about food that we bring into our home. And you've written an amazing piece on Serious Eats um, about food safety in the COVID-19 crisis that everyone should Google and read. And I wonder if we could start by talking us through your protocol um, you know, you go to the supermarket or you get your order from supermarket delivery service and the six bags of groceries show up. What is your protocol? What do you do? I, I think as, as many people know by now, you know, the, the main um, the main concern with the with the virus spreading is um, through person to person contact. Um, you know, so so the, the the fewer people you come in contact with um, and the the better distance you keep from from people, you know, that that's that's your best way of saying of staying safe. Um, there, there's very low risk uh, when it comes to virus that's been deposited onto surfaces, in, including food. Um, you know, so so having a contact free delivery system, that's that's very low risk. But, you know, going to the actual supermarket, that, that's a higher risk activity. And, and you know, at least where I live now, um, you know, this, the supermarkets have pretty good protocols in place. The better ones will limit the number of people that are allowed in the store at a time. Uh, they'll have markings on the ground outside for how far you should be staying away from each other. Um, and I find that most people are respectful of those things. What, what I personally try and do to limit my contact with, you know, with, with, large groups of strangers is I, I tried to go to the, to the local supermarkets, the smaller ones. So instead of going to the big supermarkets where, you know, so, so every supermarket has a pinch point, right? They have that doorway that people go through and whether it's, whether it's a supermarket that, that, you know, 10,000 square feet or 2000 square feet, they still have basically the same size doorway. And so, so that's the point where you're, where a lot of everybody who's in that supermarket is going to be passing through that doorway at some point. Um, and you're more likely to come into contact with the, the air that other people have breathed with dry 
droplets that other people have um, let out. So I, I tend to go to the smaller super, supermarkets just because I know that there are fewer people going in and out of that doorway at any given time. Um, and also, you know, I, I have a I have a young daughter, a three year old daughter, and she's you know she's she's out of school, like just like all kids, she's out of school right now. So I, you know, so we do Papa preschool four days a week and Mama preschool one day a week. Um, and so when I go supermarket shopping, like she's inevitably with me. Um, and, um, you know, and toddlers can, can touch things, right. They, they, they like to touch things. Um, and so as much as I can control that, I can't, I would like to, but I know that she's going to end up touching things, um, and probably touching her face afterwards. So, you know, so, so I'm kind of hyper aware of, of as far as like surfaces that a lot of people have come in contact with. So that, that's why I tend to try and go to the smaller supermarkets, just because I know that fewer people, um, a fewer total number of people are going to be going into there. Um, and the fewer total number of people that you come in contact with, um, the less likely it is that you're going to be um, a, you know, the, the less likely it is that you're going to be exposed to virus. Um, you know, the, the whole virus thing, it's, it's all, everything is sort of a, a risk factor. You know, it's, um, it's, it's not that, that, option A is safe and option B is unsafe. Um, it's, it's just that, you know, the, everything is a spectrum and every, every, every action you take has some amount of risk on that spectrum. And so it's, it's a sort of a question of, uh, of personal choice, like how much, um, how much are you willing to risk in order to, in order to maintain some sense of normalcy in your life? Although, you know, we can get more into, we can get more into the details of that later. But I, but I think that, I think that's the main thing to, to keep in mind through this whole conversation is that there's no, there's no black and white. That's a safe thing. That's a not safe thing. It's really just a question of, of risk management and, and avoiding unnecessary risks when, uh, when you don't. Right. So in terms of risk management, it probably isn't necessary to, let's say, um, sterilize every can of tomatoes that you take out of the bag um, after you've been shopping. Like you don't need to spray disinfectant on each one. You know, I so 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 that is one of those things where I think it really comes down to personal choice because one, once it comes into your own home, it's like your your time is yours, right? It's like what you decide to do with your time is yours. You know, the the thing to remember about a virus versus a bacteria is that a virus needs um, a host cell to, to, um, to multiply. So when somebody, uh, who say is infected with the coronavirus, um, if they sneeze on a can of tomatoes, the moment that they sneeze on that can of tomatoes, that's the maximum viral load that that can, can of tomatoes is ever going to have from there on out. It's getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Um, it'll, it'll die off naturally. Um, I mean, assuming that we're considering viruses to be alive right now, which is a, a, a controversial thing in the world of viral in the world of virology, but it dies off um, naturally, and then also every time it comes into contact with other things. So when the person picks up that can of tomatoes and puts it on the shelf, when somebody else goes into the shop and handles it, unlike a bacteria or certain types of bacteria, where the more surfaces it's spread to, the more chances it has to grow. Um, with a virus, the more places it's spread to, the the more it's diluted. The studies that we've seen have shown that. Active virus doesn't last that long on most things. You know, it can last a few days on metal surfaces, on hard on hard surfaces, metals and plastics. Um, a little bit less long on porous surfaces, woods, cardboard, uh, things like that. Um, and so, the, the chances that the can of tomatoes that's been sitting on that supermarket shelf probably and has been in transit, you know, for for a few days, it's it's probably only been in contact with a few people that were actually close enough to potentially deposit a viral load on it. And then the number of, and then you multiply that by the, by the odds that um, they did it recently. Um, and, and the chances are, and then, and then again, you multiply that by the, by the odds that you're going to rub it and then rub it into like your eyes or, 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 or someplace where it can get into your respiratory system, which is the place where you're most likely to get the, um, where you 
you're most likely to get it, get infected. Um, the, the odds are very low that you're going to get it from a can of tomatoes. That said, it's very, if, if it's very, you know, if you have the space and it's easy enough for you to, uh, take your cans of tomatoes and put them in the garage for three days, you know, where we, at, at that point, we know that there's probably no, uh, transmissible virus on it left, left remaining. Um, you know, if you have the space to do it, then, and, and you have the inclination, then why not? You know, like, I, I'm not going to discourage anyone from, from from being safe about things if they want to be personally i i don't you know it's, well as someone as someone who's who, who works in restaurants um and who's worked in restaurants for 18 years it's like a lot of food safety you know like the hand washing thing is kind of just drilled into me and i kind of do it automatically you know I'm, I'm more lax about things at home than i am at the restaurant you know as long as you're following sort of basic good hygiene practices in general like and anything that would keep you safe from getting sick from other types of bacteria you know norovirus things that are that are much more easily transmissible are going to keep you safe from this as well and you make clear in your in your piece that viral load is a really big deal and where you get really big viral loads are where lots of people are together in one place and that's where all the outbreaks come from in, you know, everywhere. Um, in our meatpacking plants is a great example of that. And so we're not having a lot of outbreaks from random handling of cans of tomatoes that weren't uh, sterilized when they came in. Yeah, no, I mean, none that we know of, right? There, um, the in, in countries where they've had better tracking of um, the spread of the virus, you know, we're, we're woefully inadequate at testing in the U.S. right now for various reasons. Um, but um, in countries where they've had better testing and tracking of the spread of the virus, so far there've been no, there's been no indication that there's been any kind of foodborne um, transmission. The transmissions that we know of all come from social interactions. So it's, it could be like a church group. It could be a choir practice. It could be um, a, a conference, you know, um, where, where a, whole bunch of pe- a whole bunch of strangers get in contact with each other. Um, th- those are the situations where you really want to avoid, um, which is you know, which is why social distancing has been, has been the main thing that's been stressed um, and why, why it's so important um, that we continue doing the social distancing. And so for takeout and delivery of prepared food, it's pretty much the same thing. Once it's in your house, there's a vanishingly rare chance of getting a virus from it um, as long as you just sort of maintain the usual hand-washing protocols so when I was writing my articles, um, I, I mean, I consulted with a, with a, a, a whole lot of experts, um, but I, I specifically asked um, a few questions. So I mean, one of the questions I specifically asked to virologists and, and pathologists and, and food safety experts is, all right, let's say like worst case scenario, there's a cook at a restaurant who is infected with coronavirus. They don't know it. They're working and they're, they're preparing my salad and they sneeze directly on my salad. Um, and then they put that salad in a box. And then uh, I get that box and I take it home. What like what are the chances that I that I can then get sick from it? Um, and the answer is it's still very 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 low. I mean there have been no no known cases of foodborne transmission, and and the reason is because it's a it's a, it's a respiratory virus. So more recent studies have found um, have have found um, signs of uh, viral activity in the um, in the gut. Though there has you know there there has there have been people who have experienced sort of gastrointestinal problems related to um, the coronavirus. There's no indication that there's any kind of oral uh, pathway for infection. Um, the, the pathways for infection that we know of are all respiratory. So you know unless you're literally inhaling your hamburger and, and getting it into your lungs, um, the odds that you're going to get um, uh, active virus and get get infected um, by eating food is, is very low. So risk factors, um, going back to talking about risk factors. Um, so 
when you're eating food, um, you know, your, your body, your body prepares itself to eat food. Like just when you start, like right now, if you think about a hamburger or salt and vinegar potato chips, think about salt and vinegar potato chips, and you can feel your tongue starting to produce saliva and you can feel your body getting, you know, getting ready. You're physiologically, you're getting ready to accept food. And when your body is in this mode to accept food, um, it's main, you know, the main, the main job your mouth is doing is getting food from your mouth into your, into your, uh, stomach. So, your, your body produces more saliva, which means that your whatever you put in your mouth gets wet faster and things start to break down faster. And so when, when you're ready to eat food, it's actually much less likely that you're going to be infected with a respiratory virus because your body is leading things down to your stomach. And as far as we know, uh, the virus can't, you know, can't survive the, the acidic environment of your stomach. So this is all very reassuring about food handling and food production. And I mean, I think you, you basically summarize it as wash your hands a lot. Don't pick your nose, avoid crowds. Uh, yes. Don't yet. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the advice everyone is giving, which yeah. is, um, yeah, don't uh, avoid crowds. Try you know, d- as much as you want to. Don't, don't throw that party <laughs> or don't go to that party that your neighbors invited you. My, my neighbors have invited me to, to parties at their house, which, uh, um, I have politely, politely declined. <laughs> um, um, you know, and, and it, it's tough, you know, because it's, we've been, we've been in, we've been under lockdown for two months now, um, maybe over two months. Now. I can't remember exactly how long, but, um, it, it feels definitely like it's been over two months. Um, and, um, you know, it, it is, it is everyone, everyone I think is starting to go stir crazy, but, um, you know, the, the, the reason why the viral and why the infections have been lower in countries that have had good, um, social distancing, um, procedures in place is because it works. Um, yeah. and you know, as, as tempted as we are to say, okay, like it's not a threat anymore. Look at that. It's not a threat because nobody's getting sick. Well, well, first of all, people are getting sick, but you know, the reason why more people aren't getting sick is because of what we're doing. Right. You know, it's, it's, um, and so we, we need to, you know, I, I, I think we, I firmly believe in the power of science and I believe we need to continue trusting the scientists, um, trust the scientists over the politicians for sure. But, um, you know, uh, scientists, you know, science is a method of understanding how things work and, and it's a method of understanding the world around us. Um, and, um, you know, as fallible as science can be, it's, it's still less fallible than just pure speculation and opinion. Right. And so speaking of the advice to avoid crowds, you also own a restaurant and I believe you're at your restaurant right now, Worst Hall. And I want to talk a little bit about restaurants. I mean, restaurants are number one in industry that thrives on, on, uh, on social contact. And, um, I haven't been to worst hall yet. Uh, I I hope to someday, but I imagine when it's sort of at its funnest, it's sort of shoulder to shoulder, big steins of beer, sausage. Yes. Um, And so (laughs) um, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about what is going on, you know, right now at worst hall, what, what you're up to, what it looks like these days. So, yeah, yeah, so you are right. So our, I mean, our restaurant is modeled after German beer garden. So yeah, so, um, we have, we have communal tables that seat 40 people shoulder to shoulder. Um, and on a, on a normal night pre virus, we were, um, you know, we would have 200 people in here shoulder to shoulder. When, when the virus is, of course, you know, obviously we shut down all, but in fact, before, even before the shut, before the, um, the shelter in place orders, uh, in California, San Mateo County came down, we closed down service. Um, and we switched initially to a takeout only model, which is what a lot of restaurants are doing. Um, the, then we actually stopped doing takeout because, um, 
you know, right now the biggest, the biggest, at least in, in San Mateo County, I don't know how it is in the rest of the, in the rest of the country. I know some, some states have reopened and some, some uh, counties have reopened, reopened. Um, San Mateo County is actually reopening in a couple of weeks with some strict measures in place. But the issue at most restaurants now is not necessarily the customers, but it's the, the staffing um, and the density of the staffing because, um, you know, as much as you can tell a restaurant, hey, like, make sure your cooks stay six feet apart. Um, the reality is when you're busy, you, you can't. Right. Um, and so, you know, so it, it, restaurants right now, you know, a lot of them are they're considered essential food businesses. So if you like in, in San Mateo, at least or in San Francisco, if you go into a fast food restaurant, they're, they're staffed almost as densely as they were before. Right. There's people working three, four feet, feet apart. And, and you know, with, with us, it's like we were trying for a while to um, we, we cut down on staffing a lot. Uh, but what the, the issue we ran into is that despite the, the shortness of staff, um, people still wanted their lunch between 11 a.m. and 1 p.m. and they still wanted their dinner between 6 p.m. and 8 p.m. Um, and so we had these big rushes and during the rushes, um, cooks would forget about the social distancing and they would start walking back and forth past each other. They would pass things to each other, you know, and so whatever whatever, um, whatever safety protocols you put in place, um, it was very difficult to enforce them and get people to follow them. Um, and so we actually ended up we cut down. So our, our issue was that we were too busy. And so we cut that we got completely cut out takeout business um, because we didn't want to. Um, well, we didn't want our workers getting sick. And, and of course, there's always, you know, it's always that that balance as a as a um, as a business owner and an employer. It's like on the one hand, it's like your cooks want to work because they need they need the hours and they want the pay. Um, uh, and, you know, and despite the fact that there's unemployment, um, I mean, as we all know, like a lot of restaurant industry people back of the house especially um, are not eligible for unemployment for various reasons so they want the hours but at the same time it's like you you can't ask them to work and put themselves at risk and be and be sick you know um, and 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 then it's like I also don't want to put myself at risk by by calling in all these employees and, and coming into contact with them put my whole family at risk um, uh, so, you know, what, what we've done at the restaurant is, um, early on, we started doing community outreach. We started finding places in the community that need, um, that needed food. Um, so community centers. So we work a lot with the, um, the Samaritan house in San Mateo, um, and, uh, a, a whole number of, of hospitals and, um, everywhere actually down from all the way down to Gilroy to San Francisco. Um, so we work both directly with those hospitals and community centers and also through an organization called Off Their Plates, which works under World Central Kitchen, which is Jose Andres's um, organization. Um, and so early on, we started taking, started requesting the community uh, for, of the community um, to give donations so that we could prepare boxed meals for um, hospital workers and for um, people, you know, the people who are most affected in the community by this. Um, and by doing that, it actually has allowed us to staff better than we could doing normal service, um, which means that we can we can space our because we're doing boxed meals as opposed to um, a, a small takeout window of time, we can space our, our staffing out so that people can definitely work in a safe manner. You know, wh what that what that's going to translate once once restaurants start to reopen, um, which, you know, we're planning on doing in two weeks um, for takeout service initially again. What we found actually is that, you know, this whole process of closing down and reevaluating what our what we're going to be doing in the future um, has actually it's, it's given us a lot of insight into into ways um, we can sort of manage our operations better um, and and also what you know what we're going to be doing in the future because I think it's 
it could be years before where, or maybe, you know, who knows, who knows, maybe, maybe, maybe never, maybe things are never going to be, you know, if, if you really, if you believe the, the worst projections, um, things might never be the same as they used to be. You know, we might never be able to seat, serve 400 people here a night, um, because of the, um, the risk of, re, you know, re, restarting a pandemic. So, you know, we're sort of operating under the assumption that um, this is going to be a semi-permanent thing, at least a few years. Um, and so um, as a business, we're exploring um, other alternatives, you know, like how, I mean, how, how we can generate revenue streams. Um, so retail, um, more boxed meals, ready to eat meals, more takeout service. Um, we're exploring um, meal kits. So like, like raw product that we package in a way that people can, you know, so it's sort of like, like the blue apron or, or, um, uh, sun harvest model, but, but where people will do it locally. We've also been, um, doing like a series of online classes where people can, um, cook along. So like we just did a, me and my sous chef, uh, Eric, we just did a, an online class where people could, um, order, buy tickets and then they get like a package. They come to the restaurant at, during certain time windows and get a package of pork belly and curing salts and everything. And then we run an online class where they wow. learn how to make their own pancetta at home. And we're going to do a sausage making class next week, et cetera. Um, so it's, it's, it's really, um, <laughs> you know, as a business, as a business owner, like it's, we've had to pivot a lot. Uh, and, um, the, the biggest concern for us really is, is, you know, a, like, how do we, how do we survive as a business? Um, well, I mean, it's how do we survive as a business, and then how do we how do we make sure that our employees can survive as individual people? Um, and and both of those things, you know, they obviously play off each other. Without a business, we can't pay our employees, um, and without our employees, we don't have a business. Um, it's it's difficult though, yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, it's 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 been very tough, uh, and very specifically very tough seeing figuring out how to yeah keep our keep our employees whole. You know, yeah. Um, and when you come back, will you be at Will you be at like 50% of service or will it be takeout only or? We're going to start with takeout only. Um, you know, the other thing we're doing is that we're working with the, the city um, to, um, you know, the, down in San Mateo right now, like we're, we're trying to convince the city to do, to close off streets to traffic because there are less cars going around now, but close off streets to, streets to traffic so that restaurants can have outdoor space um, that will compensate for some of the indoor space they lose. Um, for us, I think, you know, I think our, our main actually bottleneck is going to be density of staffing because whereas we use, you know, us, like every restaurant, I think, you know, where we're, we're, we're this, our staffing density is probably going to be about half of what it was before, you know, so we used to have, um, on a busy Friday or Saturday night, we have six, six people on the line and they'd be working three feet apart. Um, now in the future, we're only going to have two to three people on the line. Um, and we're going to have to figure out, you know, more creative ways to keep our, um, to keep our staff employed that isn't just working on a busy Saturday night. Right. And so it's sort of looking at new models, like adding basically food processing and retailing to, to a restaurant model. And it's, I guess it's sort of like seeing your kitchen as an asset. How else can we transform ingredients into food for people that they'll buy in this kitchen? Yeah, it's that. You know, the other the other thing is, I mean, because I'm in my restaurant right now, you can see it's like, I mean, it's a it's a big big space. It's like, um, I don't know what the total. I think it's I think it's like fourteen thousand feet is the square feet is the total space of this. And it's like, what are you going to do with that whole space? You know, um, um, so that you know, so that that's something we've been brainstorming also. And, and it's like, you know, I can show you. Like we have a bar right? Where normally there would be 10 to 12 seats. And with the, in the current situation, we would only be able to fit 
two seats at the bar. So it doesn't make sense to keep it as a bar. Um, you know, so we're doing things like considering transforming that into retail display space. Yeah, you know, it's it's it's, it's going to be a lot of. I mean, the restaurant industry is going to is going to hurt. <laughs> it's going to yeah. it's going to hurt a lot. Let's talk about that because the the federal government in some places, like I, I was just reading about in Denmark and in Canada, businesses of your scale um, have 75% of their payrolls made by the government. No, none of this kind of paperwork and stuff like that, having to apply for unemployment, et cetera. Yeah. And then you also have in, in a lot of, um, you know, most uh, industrialized nations, your, your employees would all have healthcare as a matter of course. Right. And you wouldn't be shelling out any money for healthcare for them. They wouldn't be shelling out healthcare. And then we have our country where we had this incredibly convoluted um, CARES Act that came out with this intended um, pay- payroll protection plan. And I wonder if you could just talk through, as someone at the sort of spear's edge of it, like how, how all of that has worked out for you. How, how, how have you seen the government response go? And what would you, what would you like to see from the government? <laughs> So, okay, so there's a number of factors here. So with the, you know, with the, with the payroll protection, um, you know, the, the way we're, so the, the way I understand it is that, you know, when the, the employees that we, the employees that we had working before, um, as long as they're reemployed by June 1st, uh, there, there's protection, but we're, you know, from, from everything we've seen, we're not, we're not sure whether that, you know, so, so it, it, it seems like it's basically just loan forgiveness, but we're not sure if that forgiveness is ever coming. Um, and we're not sure if we're, we're following all the rules that are going to let us claim that forgiveness. Um, and so, you know, so for us, and I think a lot of other, a lot of other small business owners I've talked to, um, they're, they're treating it basically not as a, as a, as a forgiven loan, but as a, just as a loan. Um, so, so we're, we're doing our, our accounting and our, and our predict, you know, our, and planning for our future, assuming that at some point in the future, whatever, whatever we, we receive from the government, we are going to have to pay back at some point. And, and if we don't, great. Um, but it's such a convoluted, it seems like such a convoluted process that, um, we're not sure. Um, you know, and, and then there's the other issues, um, you know, in, in, in this country, um, you know, in California alone, there's 2.5 million, um, undocumented workers. Right. Um, and many of them are in the service industry. Um, and you know, and, and those folks aren't covered by, um, aren't, aren't covered by unemployment. And so it's like, you know, it's, it's for, for us, it's a question of like, so given that we can't rehire everyone, there, there simply isn't the work to do for everyone, you know, as much as we would like to rehire everyone. It's like, who, who do we start to rehire first? Um, and do we base that based on what we think we're going to get back from the government? Do we do it based on who we think is going to need the work most? Um, you know, the people who aren't getting unemployment right now, um, which is another tricky issue in itself. It's like, how do you, how do you find out who those people are without blatantly asking them? Um, you know, because of course they all have paperwork, right? Like it's, uh, you know, they, they all have the required paperwork, but you, you still don't know whether the, the paperwork required to get a job is not the same as the paperwork required to get actual unemployment benefits. Right. Um, or that check from the government too, un- undocumented folks were, yes. were cut off from that $1,200 stimulus check. Yeah, yeah. You know, and so, so, you know, to address that need, we've been like, we've been very, we've been very vocal about and to all of our employees. If you, you know, we're, we're preparing all this food for healthcare workers, for community centers. Um, if you need, if you need to come in or if you want to, you know, we don't say if you need, but if you want to come in and get, and get meals, like you are welcome to come in and take meals. Just like, let us know and we'll, and we get them for you. Um, which some people have taken advantage of, not, not too many, but, um, 
Yeah, I mean, we're 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 currently un- operating under the assumption that um, that that we are going to have to pay back any any kind of go- um, any assistance we're getting from the government um, in the long run. Which uh, doesn't know. seem that seems incredibly unfair to shut down an industry for a public health crisis that the industry had nothing to do with creating um, and require them to shut down and then impose this kind of uncertainty on owners. Yes. Well, you know, it's it's unfair to the small businesses. You know, I, th- I think it's really it's really more aimed at the at the sort of larger restaurant. You know, it's like like the you know McDonald's probably doesn't have to worry as much um, as Worst Hall does, where their you know where their money is going to come from in in the future. You know, it's it's like uh yeah it, it's. It's it's really it really feels that you know the the rest I mean the restaurant industry is it's it's a bad it's, it's not a good business to be in first of all like if, if your goal is to make money like restaurants are not the place to do it um, because you're you're operating under razor razor thin margins in the first place um, and oftentimes you know many with you know for us like it's like the first several months of our operations until we really sort of fine tuned operations um, for us it was like the more customers we had the more money we were losing you know because it, it was it actually cost us to feed people um, even after they after they paid their whatever amount for fourteen dollars for a chicken sandwich i don't know what we're can't remember what we're charging for it now but whatever whatever it is um um it's not cheap to operate a restaurant um and and rate and profits are raised you know rev, profits are razor thin and so to then yeah to them place that kind of uncertainty and say hey um we're gonna help you but maybe we won't like it's um it, it, and then asking you to to take that risk um is yeah, it, it, it doesn't see it doesn't seem like something that a um, that a that a, a a nation like the U.S. should be doing. But um, you know, but here we are. <laughs> yeah, and then you layer on top of it because um, I find all of this just mind-boggling. Um, obviously, social distancing is terrible for restaurants. Um, and then when you lay on top of it that we may be entering the mother of all recessions. I mean, we're yeah. already in a, we're in a recession right now, and. To avoid a depression, like a 1930s-style depression, we're going to need some kind of big government program that doesn't appear to be coming. Um, and so now you guys are also looking at um, a recession. And, uh, and people, you know, when there's 30-plus percent unemployment, people go out to eat less. They have less money kicking around to spend on sausage, you know, out, out at the bar. Um, and so, how, you know, how do you deal with that? Um, you know, for, for us, you know, I think we we are lucky um, on a national scale to be um, to be you know I mean we're, we're in the Bay Area and um, it you know at least for now um, at least you know at, at least for now it seems like most of the the families and 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 uh, customers that that come to our restaurant um, are okay yeah <laughs> you know it's like it's like um, you know people in the tech industry are are, are still working they're they they're able to work from home they're still making their paychecks they're still making their exorbitant salaries, um, and they still have money to spend on food. Um, and, um, you know, and, and it's also like, I think we, 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 we do well as far as, as far as community outreach and, and, you know, personally, I, I strongly believe that like doing good as an individual and doing good for your community, um, even if there's no way to calculate what that's going to bring back to you, that as a business, like doing good is always the right move, both from like just a general you know, being a good person standpoint to, but also just on a pure business, from a pure business standpoint, which is, which is sometimes hard to convince investors and hard to convince partners. 
but um, you know, I, I think like, you know, the, the, the proactive stance we've taken in trying to reach out to, to our community, making sure that um, the people who are affected by this in our community are are being taken care of and are, are, are and we're feeding them as best we can. Um, I think, you know, in the end, like for, for us as a business, that's also going to help because it, it, um, it, you know, people, people like to spend their money at places where they feel good spending their money and they want to know that the money that they spend um, is going to be, um, you know, going towards helping a business that helps their community. Um, and so, you know, for, for us, I think we're, we're lucky in that we have a relatively large platform, um, like a marketing platform, social media, whatever, you know, um, where people hear about us um, and people in the community know about us, you know, but I, but I think all that, you know, that I, I say lucky, but I, I, in the sense that, it, but that's also, con, you know, taking into consideration that, you, you know, you, you make your own luck in these things where it's like the more proactive you are about these things, the more community support you're going to have. And so I, I guess I'm saying like in, as an industry as a whole, I think, um, yeah, we're in the industry is in a lot of trouble. Um, I think we, we in particular are in a very lucky position and in a very fortunate position, um, both in terms of, you know, geographically and demographically, um, as well as like sort of the reputation we've built for ourselves to be able to weather, you know, we, we've, we've done everything we can to be able to weather the future storm, but even so we're worried. And if we're worried, then, then, um, I can't imagine how, you know, many other restaurants are, are feeling who, who aren't as in, um, a, um, and as advantageous as, as a position as we are. You're listening to a podcast of Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Support our podcast and find out about upcoming live events in San Francisco at inforumsf.org. And so you're looking at a future, at least in the near term, of sort of tr- transforming on the fly into kind of a food production hub that has various channels of, of putting it out. And I I think that's an interesting model for the industry to to go into. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's also going to be a competitive model, and and it's like, you know, it's like we're we're not like cutthroat competitive, but it's like one of our main strategies is going to be that we're trying to we're trying we're going to try increasing sales to people beyond our neighborhood, right? So it's like we'll eventually we want we want to do mail order retail, um, we want to do um, classes that people across the country or across the world are going to want to join. Um, and so it's like looking at revenue streams, it's like, we, we know that as a business to survive, like we're probably going to have to look outside of our immediate locality, um, as, uh, for revenue streams to survive as a business. Um, and so as soon as you start doing that, then, you know, you're, it, it is competition, you know, it's like, it's like every, every, there's only so much room for, only so much room in the world for, for, for online sausage making classes. Right. And, and it's like, if you're trying to market to everyone in the world, then you're competing with all the local, um, the, the local places too. Um, and you know, and, and it's not like we, you know, we, we don't think about it in like a, Oh, we have to, we have to, we have to put those guys out of business, but it's like, we have to, you know, we have, we have to try and try and make our business succeed as much as possible. And, 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 um, and if there's a, if there's something that we can do that people want, yeah, that brings value to people's lives, then, um, we're going to try and put it out there. Um, whether that's mail order, you know, sausages or whatever to, um, or online classes. The good news is that where, no matter where it comes from, people have to eat, right? People are still going to be eating. Um, and so that means that that might mean that, you know, maybe in the short term supermarket, you know, supermarkets are doing much better now than they did before. Um, because people aren't eating out at restaurants as much and they're, they're getting more food at home. Um, it, it, you know, the, the, the economy is all going to shift from one place to another, but, um, at some point it's going to reach a, a, a new equilibrium and, you know, and 
the, the number of mouths to feed on the earth is continuously going up and people are still going to have to eat. So as long as you find, um, as a business, as long as you find a way to reach those mouths and, and you go about it a smart way. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I hope we'll succeed at it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so do we. Um, and you know, I have gotten you talking about the restaurant business, but what you're, so many people know you for is streamlining home cooking, rethinking home cooking. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, um, your quarantine, your sort of household quarantine cooking regime these days, what sort of stuff you're cooking in your house with your family. And, um, particular, a couple of people asked me, you know, to ask Kenji, you know, how does he avoid, especially in this time when we're all, I mean, like maybe you have a, um, a sort of house recipe that you do maybe once a month, but now that people are cooking every night in the house, um, maybe that you're doing it once a week now and you're getting tired of it and you're, people are falling into ruts. Um, right. So if you could talk a little bit about how to, you know, keep from falling into a rut. Oh, I mean, <laughs> I, I mean, I can tell you how I do it. I don't know how useful that's going to be though. Um, you know, so, so for me, it started, I mean, it started in, in college. It's like, um, so, um, when I was in college, I lived in a, I lived in a, a, a co-ed fraternity, um, which is where my, my wife was in the same fraternity actually. And, um, that's how I we met. I didn't I lived, know they had this. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's a few of them. Um, we were a national co-ed fraternity and, um, Delta Psi, if there's any of you out there. Uh, but, um, we were also about 80% international students. Um, and so, uh, in college after my sophomore year, um, we ended up, I was a house manager then, and we ended up firing our cook because, um, he was doing cocaine off the piano and stealing steak. Um, anyhow, for, for a variety of reasons, we fired our cook, um, and we had trouble finding a new one. And so I was like, I'll, I'll, I'll cook. Um, and so I cook, I ended up cooking for our house. Um, and during that time, um, what I tried to do was, um, on weekends, I would, um, for, for all the weekend meals, I would, I would spend a week talking with one of my housemates from a foreign country, um, about a food they missed from home, um, and learn as much about it as possible, um, and then try and cook it. Um, and, and so, so that to me, you know, that sort of, to me triggered like an ongoing lifelong love affair with learning about cultures through food. And, and, you know, so for, so for me, like the way I, the way I don't get bored, um, by cooking the same thing is that I, uh, I find learning about other cultures through food to be sort of endlessly fascinating. Um, and so, yeah, so on, on my free time, I like to read about food from other places and then I think about it and I cook it, you know, and I try cooking it. And, um, you know, I, th I think, you, you know what the, re you know, what I think the real take home is, um, is that, so here's an example, the, one time, uh, I, I, we, there was a few British people, British exchange, exchange students at, at, um, at MIT, at my, um, at my house. Um, and they were talking about, um, toad in the hole, which is, uh, sausage cooked in a Yorkshire pudding. Um, I had no idea what a Yorkshire pudding was. I'd never heard of it. No idea what it was. And they're like, Oh, it's kind of like a batter, um, that you pour into a pan and you bake it. Um, and so I was like, okay, I'll make a batter and pour it into a pan and bake it. And so I, I, made like what I made, like basically like a pancake batter, poured it into like a metal hotel pan and stuck a bunch of sausages in it and baked it. And it came out like nothing like a Yorkshire pudding, which I didn't know that. I mean, it came basically like, it was like basically like cornbread with sausages in the middle, okay. nothing like a Yorkshire pudding. Um, but it was still tasty. It was still, it was still edible. It was still good. People ate it. Um, and I learned from that experience. And so I get, so the, the take home is that one thing that I think puts people off from trying new things is that they're afraid that they're going to mess them up. Um, and they're afraid they're not going to do justice to them or they're afraid they're going to 
embarrass themselves um, by cooking something that isn't exactly how it's supposed to be. Um, and, and I, I, you know, and I feel that I'm sort of actually guilty in making people feel that way because uh, what from, you know, from, from the way the way some people interpret my recipes, which tend to be very precise, they, they interpret it as saying like, if you don't do it this way, it's not right. Like it's, it's, it's the wrong way to do it. Like Kenji said, cook your steak this way. And if you do it any other way, you're wrong, which is exact, which is like the opposite of how I want people to feel. Um, you, you know, I, I think, the, the first step to, to diversifying, diversifying your, your repertoire is to not be afraid to screw things up because it's really, really hard to make something that's literally inedible, right? It's like, I can think, like, maybe you, you, you completely burn it and, and you don't want to eat it because you're going to get one bite is going to give you instantly give you cancer or, or it's so salty that you can't possibly eat it. You know, th- those are like maybe the only two ways I can think of that you would completely ruin something. Um, but you know, it, we all get the chance to cook three, you know, we all, we all eat three times, three meals a day, or most, most of us do. Um, we, we all eat three meals a day, which is three chances to cook new things every day. And, um, and it might be three chances to mess things up, but that means you can try again the next day, three more times. Um, and, and eventually you're going to get it right, you know? So it's like, if, if you find yourself in a rut cooking the same thing, then just, just stop, right? So just cook something else <laughs> yeah. and, and, and be okay with the fact that the first time you cook it, it's not going to be all right. You know, it's, it's probably not going to be perfect. It may never be perfect, right? Like it, but it's going to get progressively better each time you cook it. Um, and so if something interests you, just, just go for it and, and don't be embarrassed by, by messing up. I think, I think that, you know, you're, people are, are frequently their own biggest critics. Um, and, and especially it's like when you put a lot of work into something, if it doesn't come out as like exactly how you pictured it in your head, it's really easy to put yourself down. But most people, you know, it's like, I'm, you know, sometimes people tell me they're like, they're, they're shy to cook meals for me. It's like, I, I'm not, I'm not judgmental. When I mean, it's like, I'm very happy no matter what you make for me. If like, if, you know, the, the point of food to me, it's like, if, if you get people together around a table, um, you get the family together around a table and you're talking and you're enjoying each other's company, then, then like the food has done its job, right? It's like, once you're past the basic sustenance level, um, if, um, if, if the food brings you together and allows you to have conversations, I mean, we're having conversations about food right now, but it, you know, if it, if it, if it opens up conversations and it, and it connects you with people, then, you know, that's sort of the job of food. Right. Um, and that, and you know, and that, that's, I think the cultural job, it's the, yeah, it's, 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 it's why, it's why we eat and it's why we share meals and why we love to sit around a table. As long as you're all talking about it um, and you're having fun, then like, who really cares if the food came out perfectly? Um, and, and if it didn't come out perfectly, then that's like a co- topic of conversation, right? It's like you can talk about why it didn't come out well and what you can do next time to do better. And you can, you can just put salsa on it and, it, you know, you can just sort of use yeah. condiments to, to, to dress it up and it's yes. going to be fine. One question I had to <laughs> squeeze in before I go into Q&As is that what I find so fascinating about your work and what I've learned so much about it is that you seem to specialize in taking classic dishes and then asking, do we really have to do it this way? And you try to get the same result as a classic dish, but you hmm. you find different ways of doing it. Like I was just watching one of your videos recently where it was one of these moments where I'm like, I can't believe he's doing that. And then I saw the logic of it. And that was you were um, sauteing off some pancetta that you had chopped mm-hmm. up. And you said, well, you know, classically, you might put some olive oil in first. And um, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to put water in. I was just like did a double take. And I was just thinking about um, this Marcella Hazan, you know, Essentials yeah. of Classic Italian Cuisine, a classic cookbook. And, um, and she would just, you know, I mean, I, you know, cooked out of that for 15 years and she would rebel against that. But then when you explained <laughs> it, 
um, it made sense and I can't wait to try it out. And, um, and I wonder, um, if you get pushback from people saying, like, I had a friend, I was using the low water pasta method, which I've been using for right. a, a good while now. And, um, a, a friend who might be listening tonight said, um, you know, I can't believe you do it that way because she knows that I love Italian food. She says, how can you do it that way when the Italians don't do it that way? Doesn't right. that? And, I, and and I'm like, well, it's it's actually better because you get this such a rich uh, pasta water. But I'm wondering yeah, exactly. if you get if you get um, pushback like that, and, and how you answer that that you've you know you've um, <laughs> you're producing the same results, um, but you've tweaked the the yeah. way to get there. I mean, it could be the same results, or it could be different results. You know, I mean, sometimes you know. So if going going to the example about like um, cooking a pancetta. Um, so, you know, the, the three ways you could do it would be to do it naked in a pan, um, where you do it kind of low and slow at the start to render out some of that fat so that you have some medium to fry in, um, which is a fine way to do it. It takes a little bit of time. Um, you could add a little bit of oil so that you have, you know, like olive oil, whatever you want. So you have that medium already to start with, start with, um, a little bit faster. Yeah. Um, or, or, um, you can do what I think I did in, uh, I was making pasta la gricia in the, you video, were. the video you're talking about, um, where I start with a little bit of water and what you do is you put the pancetta with, with water and you let the water evaporate. And then as the water evaporates, some of the fat, um, melts out. The other thing that happens when you do that though, is, is some of the protein seeps out of there also. So you end up with, um, with fond in the pan, you know, so that when you then deglaze it with pasta water, the, um, you get it, it you know, the, the results are different. You get like, you get, um, sort of a darker, um, a darker sauce. And so, so it's a question of like, which one do I prefer? And, 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 you know, very, very frequently what I, what I find is that, you know, so asking those questions, like, is it better to do it with water or is it better to do it with oil? It's like, it's like asking like, which is the better Beatles album, like rubber soul or revolver. And it's like, right. it, it depends on your mood, right? It's like, I felt like doing it this way today. So I did it that way. I feel like doing it this way another time. So, so I'm doing it that way. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I think, you find that, it, um, especially in, in, in countries that have um, uh, a very um, hyper-regional and rich food culture, um, so Italy would be the prime example, um, people, people do tend to get very defensive about the particular way um, a certain thing is done. Um, but but you, what, you, what you sort of have to eventually realize as an as a outsider is that, um, is that just because someone in a, in a country says this is the way they did it. Like, so, you know, the interesting thing about Italian cuisine is like, you can, you can ask five different, five Italians and depending on what part of the country they're in, or e- even if it's like neighboring towns, they do things differently. You know, it's like, so different so really dialects like, in neighboring towns. Yeah. It's like, do I, do I, do I trust like what this one specific person's grandmother says? Um, or do I just tr- do it the way I like it and be okay with it? You know, it's like, it, it, I mean, I, you know, I think it, it comes down to questions of like authenticity and, and tradition. Um, and, and I, and, and I think as long as, you know, as long as you sort of understand, understand a food culture, um, I, th- I think if you understand a food culture and you understand why people do things a certain way, then you are totally free to do it your own way. I mean, even if you don't understand it, you're free to do it your own way, of course. Yeah. Um, but you get a sort of a lot more street cred and a lot more leeway if you say, hey, this is the way that it's traditionally done, but I'm not doing it because I feel like doing it this way. Your, your reasons don't have to be, I'm doing it this way because it, because it makes the proteins um, coagulate differently. Like your, your reasons don't have to be scientifically backed like that, you know, or, or, yeah. or have any of the jargon in it. It could just be, the reason I'm doing it this way is because I felt like doing it that way. Right. Um, it's, it's funny because I, so I have a, um, and, and this is going to sound like a plug because it is, but um, it, it's, 
perfectly relevant to this conversation, which is that I have a children's book coming out in September um, uh, called Every Night is Pizza Night. And, and it's about a girl who thinks that pizza is the best food in the world. And therefore, she's only going to eat pizza every night. Um, and, and then the book is her about learning how the concept of best, um, learning about the concept of best and how there's different bests for different situations. Um, and that it's all sort of a matter of personal taste and a matter is sort of a situational thing. And so just because pizza is generally the best food, which it is, of course, um, doesn't mean that there can't be other bests right. out there as well. Um, okay, I'm going to jump into a couple of lightning round great questions from the audience out there. Um, and this one comes from Catherine Koo, and she asks, um, what are the five ingredients that you always make sure to have on in your pantry fridge for quarantine cooking? Like, what are five things that, um, that you can't do without? Okay, um, so olive oil that seems like a cop out all right so all right um microwavable trays of rice um like japanese rice they they sell they sell brown rice and regular rice and trays that you put in the microwave for 90 seconds um which i use um probably a couple times a week because my so my daughter her favorite breakfast is um tamago kake gohan which is um rice with eggs rice with a raw egg that you stir into it um and she requests it all the time sometimes she has it for dinner um uh, and those things make it super convenient. So I would say um, microwave rice. Um, I would say uh, cans of tomatoes um, because there's so many things you can do with cans of tomatoes. Plus, we also make pizza once a week. Um, eggs, uh, because eggs have like an extraordinarily long shelf life. You know, it's like at least two months in the fridge, but, um, probably even longer. Um, so you can stock up on eggs and, and have them. And, um, and, and like basically anything becomes a meal if you put an egg on it. It's like, I can have random vegetables and then I poach an egg and put it on there and it's a meal, right? Um, I have toast and, and put a poached egg on it. It's a meal. Like any, anything that you add an egg to becomes a meal. What, what, how many am I at so far? I think we've um, got eggs, olive oil, that special eggs, microwave oil, rice. rice. Yeah. Um, two more things. Um, we always have um, – my wife has frozen, uh, frozen pepperoni pizza hot pockets – all the okay. time. <laughs> you, know, you know what? Cure, like, cure, you know, cheese. I mean, I, I, I always have some kind of cheese. We, you know, it's, it's things that last a lot that I can go to the supermarket, buy once, and they last a long time. And you know what? Surprisingly, we've actually, we actually do a lot of, um, I think we've been eating actually even more fresh produce now than we normally do. Um, and it's because at least where I live, like farmer's markets are actually a very safe and uh, convenient way to shop. Um, I mean, you know, I used to go to the, I, I did used to go to the farmer's market, you know, a couple times a month, but now we go every weekend and, and they, they've actually been very good about, you know, you're out in the open air. So it's, it's less, it's less densely packed than, uh, than a supermarket would be. You don't have to worry about running into, you know, be in, in the supermarket, you have that like pincer attack where there's like two people coming at you from, and you're stuck in the middle of the aisle and you're like, oh no, what do I do here? Um, and you, you feel like you're in a video game trying to avoid. In, in the stealth level of a video game, but at a, at a farmer's market, you have lots of space to move around so you can make space if you need it. Um, so I would say, yeah, fresh produce, honestly. Um, and maybe that's like totally just a California bias, but <laughs> I'm sure it is, but uh, we have lots of fresh produce all the time right now. Okay, I think with Hot Pockets, that, that gets us to five. <laughs> right. um, another one is uh, from Nicole, and she wants to know what your go-to comfort food is um, and also, um, I think this is a, a great question that she adds on. What is the most interesting thing that you learned while, while writing the food lab? And I, I just want to um, tweak the question, that second question to say, um, what is the biggest 
bit of conventional received wisdom about doing something like you need um, a giant pot of salted water to boil pasta. Mm-hmm. Um, what is the biggest thing, conventional wisdom thing that you've been able to debunk? But first, talk about comfort food. Um, comfort food, well, that would probably be some kind of, um, yeah, stir- so so mapo tofu is my favorite food in the world. Um, but, oh, oh, that's, that's the other thing we always have. We have, we always have tofu at home, like a lot of it. We always have tofu because I know that if there's, yeah, tofu is like one of those things of like, I mean, everyone in my family loves it. I love it. My wife and my daughter, all of it. Um, like my daughter's favorite food is tofu and fish heads and broccoli for some reason, but tofu, but, um, so comfort food for me would be Japanese style mapo tofu. So not the Sichuan style, but that's like very oily and, and, um, and spicy, which I also love. Um, but my mom used to make mapo tofu. So the, the food that I remember making most when we were kids, um, was dumplings. Like, so once a month or every two months or so, like the three kids, me and my sisters would sit down and we would fold dumplings while we were watching TV. And then we would put them in the freezer and we'd have dumplings. And so my mom would make the filling and then with whatever filling was left over, over, um, she always used beef. Cause I think that's what was most inexpensive at the time. Um, it, um, she would take the leftover dumpling filling and then make her own version of mapo tofu with, um, with like the dumpling filling that she would saute and then uh, sake, soy sauce, mirin, sugar, um, and tofu. Um, and we called it mapo gorp because it had a gorpy texture. Um, and so I still make that for my daughter and for myself sometimes. And that, that is my, yeah, that's my comfort food. Mapo, mapo tofu with rice and furikake. And we, can we find yeah. a recipe for that online from you or in your book? Um, no. Can you write one I for us? I should put it up there. Yeah, <laughs> I should. I'll put it up there. Yeah, yeah. That yeah, I'll put, it on, I'll put it on my YouTube channel or in Serious Eats at some point. That would be yeah, fantastic. And, um, I mean, th- things I learned writing the Food Lab. Um, uh, oh, you know what? You know what I find interesting is the um, – so the idea that um, – um, Acetic acid, um, that uh, sorry, not acetic acid, ascorbic acid, um, um, lemon juice or lime juice makes your guacamole not turn brown. Uh-huh. Um, so I, I think that I have to admit, so it so it, it does in great quantities. Um, okay. but the amount that you're so in the testing I did, um, the amount that you that you add, um, to a, the, the the amount that you would reasonably add, even even at the higher end of it, um, is not actually doesn't actually affect your guacamole very much. But what does hugely affect the color of your guacamole, and and I say this is this is something that I researched um, while I was writing the food lab, but I never made it into the book. Um, I don't think I've written about it anywhere actually. But the thing that really seriously affects the browning in your guacamole is salt. Um, so if you salt your your avocados um, and you salt your guacamole while you're making it, it turns brown much faster. So if you know you're going to be pre-making the guacamole and serving it later, um, don't add salt, like stir in the salt at the end instead of sprinkling at the beginning. And it's like, it's like a night and day difference. Oh, and, and the other, and another one is the, um, eggs, um, boiled eggs. Uh, so I've written about this a number of times now, but, um, the main factor, uh, when peeling your egg, when it comes to being your, your boiled eggs being peelable is the temperature of the water that you lower them into. So if you lower them into already boiling water, um, they peel much better than if you, if you do them the way I was taught, which is where you slowly bring them up to a boil. Right. Um, when, if you slowly bring them up to a boil from cold, um, the shells fuse 
to the to the eggs fuse to the shells. Ah. And if you if you lower them into already boiling water, then um, they are much easier to peel. And that's also like a night and day difference. Okay, so let's just keep going with that. So once they they're lowered in the boiling water, how long do they stay in? So, so well, it's it, it well it depends how you like them, right? <laughs> um, you know, I, I, yeah, it depends. Like like three to four minutes is super super soft. Um, like seven to nine minutes is is medium. Like it kind of has like a like a fudgy yolk. Um, and like 11, 12 minutes is hard. Beyond that is like turning green, right? Um, but it, also, you know, it depends on the size of your eggs and the and the altitude and all that stuff. Right. Okay, so it depends. Yes. <laughs> um, let's go to another question from the audience. Um, this is a good one, and 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 you can you can take it how you want to. Um, from Alex Lennox, what book had the greatest impact on your life? And you you can talk about a food book or or a not food book. Um, what book had the greatest impact on my life? Um, uh, I, I would say uh, the first Calvin and Hobbes collection, the, the essential Calvin and Hobbes, okay. um, followed by all the other Calvin and Hobbes books. I, I mean, I feel like, um, my life philosophy, philosophy has been <laughs> largely based on Bill Watterson's life philosophy, okay. um, which he, uh, ex- expresses in, in those comic strips. Um. Yeah, I, I would say I would say Calvin and Hobbes. And how about in, in the food realm? Um, uh, in the food realm, um, it would be probably I mean, probably um, um, I mean probably on food and cooking, you know, McGee's book, um, or or potentially um, Jacques Pepin's techniques book. Um, yeah, yeah, those one of those two. You know, a question that I wanted to ask you that I'll, that I'll squeeze in now is, um, have you ever dug into some classic preparation that's really specific in its, in, in its directions and its techniques and found that actually they got it, they got everything right. Everything was actually optimized. Oh yeah. I'll, actually frequently, you know, so yeah. you know, so I get this, I, I think I, I, I sometimes get this reputation, um, that, that, uh, you know, like I'm the guy that debunks things. Um, and, and it's only because the articles where you debunk something are so much more popular than the ones where you don't. Right. And like that, that, that like saying, Hey, we've been doing this wrong the whole time. And here's the science that proves. like, here's this, here's the testing that proves it. Like that's a much better headline than, yeah, it turns out we were right about that. You know? Um, and, and so I would say, I mean, 95% of the time, um, you find that either the classic technique or, you know, or some version of the classic technique is, is the way to do things. Um, um, and, and it works great. And, and it's also like, um, you know, you know, classic techniques are, are classic for a reason. And, and the reason is because what, you know, whatever, whatever the reason it is that, that they work, they, they work. Right. And so, so you can sometimes find better ways to do things, or you can sometimes say the reason why this works is not the reason why we thought it worked. Um, but, but it's rare that you're going to find a classic technique and say, um, and say, no, this doesn't work at all. Right. It's like that if, if it didn't work at all, then people wouldn't be doing it. Um, so yeah. So I would say most of the time, um, most of the time when, when something's been done for a hundred years, uh, it is probably going to work for the next hundred years. Okay. I have, um, an interesting one from Lexi Helming. Um, she says that you've said before that it's important to both 
freeze things and thaw things rapidly. Mm. And I had the same question. Um, the freezing makes sense, but curious about the thawing part. Because I always thought that if you're going to thaw some meat out for a meal, you should think ahead and, you know, today put, you know, the pounder burger or the steak or the pork chops in the fridge. And so tomorrow, by the time you're ready to cook, they'll be nice and thawed. But is that not right? So, no. Okay. So that, so that is right. Um, but so, so I guess more, more than rapidly, it's more, so, so evenly is, is the important part. Um, and with, with thawing, it's easier to thaw evenly than it is to freeze evenly. But so, so yeah, I guess, I guess I should qualify that it's, it's really most important to, to, to freeze things rapidly. Um, um, which means that you want to, to pack them sort of as, as thin as is reasonably possible, you know, so like with ground meat, like you want to flatten it in a bag. Um, if you're, if you're going to freight, if you're going to freeze, um, uh, like a bunch of chicken breasts, you want them to be in a single layer instead of piled on top of each other. Um, and, and it's because like when you, when you freeze things, um, you know, water forms crystals, it expands. Um, and, and so that means that like the outer parts of the food are expanding while the inner parts of the foods are still at their same size. And so that ends up tearing, cells and and so then when you thaw and thaw it in the future um liquids rush out um but you know that said if you're if your food is in the shape in a shape to be frozen rapidly um which it should be then it is going to thaw i mean they, they go hand in hand it's like freezing and thawing are, are two sides of the same coin right so it's like if you're optimizing for one you are already optimizing for the other um so but but so when i say i guess so when i say thawing rapidly i'm really talking about uh, yeah thawing evenly um, right. and, and it's, yeah, exactly. So, so thawing in the fridge is better than thawing in okay. boiling water. Yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm happy to hear that because, um, it's something I've been doing all my life. So, um, and it is kind of fun to this thing that you've been doing all your life. Suddenly you learn a new way and it's, and it's great, but <laughs> I'm relieved that that's not one of them. Okay. Now it is the I'm, time. I'm, I'm glad you, I'm glad, I'm actually very glad you asked that question. Cause I never really thought about it from, from, I mean, from the perspective that you're asking it, like, it, it, um, um, yeah, I guess like from the way I phrased it, it would make it sound like, oh, it's better to like boil the meat that you're trying to, fr- right. trying to thaw than to, fr- um, and I never thought about it from that perspective. So yes, it makes, I'm, I'm glad you asked that question because that can be more clear in the future. Okay. Well, we're about out of time, but now is the time to go to the informed tradition that we ask all the speakers here. And that question is, what is your 60 second idea to change the world, Kenji? <laughs> <laughs> um, is ticking. so so my question my response is going to be super cheesy because i have i have a i have a three-year-old who i spend a ton of time with and she's like learning about the world right now and you know so i think i think learn you know compassion for others and and self-compassion are 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 the most important things um it's especially especially self-compassion you know it, it goes back to that whole idea of like being okay with making mistakes when you're when you're cooking food you know i think um being open to other people and being and being open to other cultures and understanding other points of view like starts with you being okay with putting yourself out there and being okay with failing when you do things and and understanding your own flaws and understand you know it's it's very easy to put yourself in sort of like a defensive shell and say like all right like I don't need to I don't need to deal with these other people because like I have my way of doing things and I do you know I'm very guilty of this I like I'm first to admit I'm very guilty of this like especially like online when you're in in, in contact with all kinds of people um, it's very easy to get into your own sh- own shell and to and to start feeling sort of self righteous about your own perspective and, and point of view. Um, but uh, you know, I think self reflection and, and realizing that your point of view um, is not always the right one, and that and that there are other perspectives out there, and it's okay 
to be wrong in your perspective. And it's okay to then admit that you were wrong in past in your in, in past actions um, or even in current actions, um, I think is is um is how is how we're gonna have to move forward as more and more people more and more people populate the earth um and as the internet becomes um a stronger force um yeah being compassionate to others starts with being compassionate to yourself i think well that's that's excellent (laughs) excellent advice and i want to thank you so much jay kenji lopez alt for joining us today at inforum at the commonwealth club and if you want to watch more virtual programs or support the commonwealth club Uh, and their efforts at making virtual programming, please visit commonwealthclub.org slash give. I'm Tom Philpott, along with my little dog, Jack, and we want to thank you for listening in and and wish you all, including you, Kenji, to stay healthy and safe out there. Thank you so much.